Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health-monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Dan Snow's History Hit. Simon Seabag Montefiore is one of the biggest names in history publishing. He's a brilliant historian. He's back. We've got him coming up a little bit this autumn, this fall on History Hit. We've made a little documentary with him, but this is a start of a 10. He's got a new book out, History's Greatest Speeches, following the best-selling Letters from History book. We also chatted about Jerusalem because his podcast about the history of Jerusalem, which was just a stunning gallop through thousands of years of history. That previous podcast, one of the most successful podcasts we have ever broadcast on this network. So we caught up about Jerusalem. We talked about his new book. And then he told me about his next book, which I can't tell you about, but is super exciting. So there you go. Annoying annoying little bit of gossip there for you. In the meantime, here is Simon Seabag Montefiore. Simon, good to have you back on the podcast. Great to be here. You know, to see you. You know, the one we did on Jerusalem is actually one of the most successful, most popular, most listened to podcasts ever on is history. It? Yeah. Oh, is it? That's People so are just fascinated good. by it. I've just done a, re, a, exactly. a new version of Jerusalem. And what I thought was fascinating was about six months ago, just before lockdown, I was looking at the sort of Middle East and I suddenly thought like, actually, there's a new Middle East emerging. And I thought that they were going to sign pieces with, there was going to be a sort of new paradigm where without solving the Palestinian problem, sat tragically, but nonetheless, Israel was going to make new relationships with the Gulf state, with Saudi Arabia. And so things were going to change radically. And so I thought it was a good time to update Jerusalem. So it's still the sort of same book, but it's got the last 20 years added on. Isn't it amazing? Seeing that as a student in the 90s, all anyone, basically our sense was that all the big geopolitical problems had been solved largely. Yeah. China was beginning to trade on WTO yeah. terms. Yeah. Russia was a sort of proto democracy And we all freaked out about the Palestinians. Yeah. If we can just get this bit yeah. sorted, obviously yeah. Congo, but in, you know, apart from that, it's like, if we can get this bit sorted, then everything will be great. Yeah. And now how often do you hear the Palestinians? I mean, do kids these days yeah. even know where Palestine is or what it is? It's fascinating. Well, I think the progressive left is obsessed with, obsessed with Israel and Palestine. Absolutely yeah. obsessed. And you only had to see what happened with you know, under Jeremy Corbyn, to see that, that the Palestinian issue has dominated their approach. Yes, but, uh, but it we, feels like a pretty narrow section yeah, of the population. Yes, now, but right? we were told, you're absolutely right, we were told that the Palestinian problem was all that mattered. The whole yeah. Middle East would sure. be solved. And Bill Clinton spent a lot of yeah. his time talking about the Palestinians. I personally think that the Palestinian plight is a tragedy, and it, you know, it needs to be solved, it must be solved at some point. And what is driving that, just realpolitik? Israel's been recognised as a Middle Eastern country, which is what it was all along. But then, of course, you know, the Trump presidency has also, ironically, been disastrous in so many ways. I mean, catastrophic. But in the Middle East, their peace plan and their recognition of, of Jerusalem sort of resounded in, in, in the law of un, almost unintended consequences and resulted in the Arab powers of the Gulf saying, you know, if you, if you don't annex the West Bank, 
will open relations with you, which is what's happened in the last few weeks. The point is, anyway, that I've started feeling, having this feel about the new Middle East, you know, the beginning of lockdown. So I wrote a new ending of the book involving Trump and... And, and um, the moving of the embassy. And the and moving of the embassy and the recognition of Jerusalem as, as Israeli capital. But also, you know, the, the Assads, the Syrian civil war, the, the Iran, the fall of Gaddafi, uh, Sisi in Egypt. I mean, all these things are important. I mean, most important of all is, you know, MBS in Saudi Arabia. And that's been a huge, hugely important thing because Saudi Arabia is now moving towards Israel. And I think that we'll see sometime, you know, providing MBS isn't overthrown which is always possible in an autocratic monarchy. But if he succeeds as king, I think he will open relations with Israel. So you think the kind of old-fashioned great power rivalry between the great, the leading Sunni and the leading Shia powers of the Gulf will mean they will, this means the Saudis will swallow their misgivings about Israel? Well, it's very difficult with the Saudis because they are the protectors of the two sanctuaries, you know, Mecca and Medina. So it's a much bigger, it's a much bigger ask of them to actually open public relations, public, you know, dip- diplomatic relations with Israel. But... I think they'll do it. And I think it's the withdrawal of America that's caused all this, really. It's, it's, again, it's, a bar, it's the Obama un, law of unintended consequences. I mean, Obama you know, wanted to stop nuclear proliferation with Iran. But to do that, he had to move towards Iran and away from Israel and Saudi Arabia. So what do Israel and Saudi Arabia do when they lose their biggest friend? They make friends with each other. And that's exactly what's happened. It's like simple psychology. And they want to confront Iran. Iran is their big fear. You know, Iran is the, great, is the big player whether it was under the Shah um, or whether it's today under, the, under Khomeini, it's a powerful country, huge, huge history, a huge, deep culture. I mean, it's an amazing, it's an amazing country with, a, with, with just astonishing history and astonishing aspirations to great power in the Middle East. I mean, you, one's got to remember, one sometimes forgets that you know, there were times in, in the past where Persia had Jerusalem, had Egypt, had Syria, had the lot, you know, so even though these people aren't sort of really, they aren't really empire builders in the sense of Darius the Great and um, Cyrus the Great, they've inherited partly that worldview. You've had a busy year because you haven't just written the Jerusalem book, but you've got another primary sources book out, which is great yeah. fun, that, that after the letters that we talked about last time. Yeah, that was so fun. Um, so this one's more speeches, is it? This one is speeches. So this is this one, which is Voices of History, Speeches That Changed the World. And it's the companion to the other one written in history, Letters That Changed the World. And this is all the speeches that, you should know, and many of them you won't know, and some you'll be very familiar with. Do speeches matter? Like, I see people making speeches on the floor of the Senate yeah. or in the House of Commons in the UK, and you know there's about to... No one's in the chamber, and there's about to be a whipped vote which is going to go on, on party lines. Finishing this book, are you left with a profound sense of the importance of oratory? Yeah, I mean, I think... But it depends how you define oratory, and I think that's what you're getting at, because, you know, speeches on the assembly floor in the Congress, in Parliament now, have, have, are usually pretty mediocre. By the way, I think they probably always were, most speeches were pretty mediocre. It's just that we've, we've had them distilled by history for us. I mean, you know, do you think most people were speaking like Winston Churchill and, you know, in Parliament? No, very few were. But I think that there are, television has changed the nature of speech making because, you know, it's, politicians know that in, in Parliament they're seen by sort of 600 people, but on television they're seen by 50 million people. So all speaking is now about what we, we call sound bites, but it's oratory. I mean, look at Tony Blair. You know, he was he was a sort of master communicator, or, or Donald Trump for that matter. I mean, we may not like what he says, his coarse, coarse and crass speeches, but his speeches are a way to delight his base. Yeah. And he's a master communicator with tweets, with speeches. I mean, look at those amazing speeches he gives. He has nothing written down. He walks out there in front of you know ten thousand people, and he's being watched on CNN by by millions of people, including people who hate him but are just fascinated by him. 
and that is oratory. But it's you know it's not it's not what I'd call good oratory. It's very bad. It's kind of meandering. It's bigoted, but it's political communication, and that's what this is about. This book is about the greatest speeches, and we've got sort of Churchill and and Martin Luther King and Socrates. And then it's about sort of sort of the worst speeches too, you know. And we've got one of Donald Trump's speeches, the the first speech he gave when he launched his campaign. Oh, the Mexicans are rapists. Mexicans are rapists yeah. speech. Which, when you read it, by the way, it is just extraordinary. I mean, it's hilarious. It's got long kind of long digressions where he's just boasting about his how rich he is and thinking aloud, and then he gets back. But the message is there, and that's one of the sort of great tests of speeches, um, is that sort of the message has to be simple, because you're really dealing with television nowadays. And so, so has the medium changed? I mean, did Pericles speak completely differently to Chatham, to oh, Pitt the Elder, and then to Elizabeth Tudor? Does it all depend who you're talking to, where, inside, outside? What, yeah, it all that... depends. First of all, speech making is risky because it's the one thing about it is it's spontaneous, and we saw that with uh, Lukashenko, for example, um, when he was booed outside that factory the other day in Belarus, or with Ceausescu when he gave that speech where he was booed and then shot afterwards. So. You know, giving a speech, it's live, it's a risk. You know, that's one thing. But then there are all sorts of um, different circumstances, you know, whether it's in a... You have to know your audience. And, of course, in modern politicians, there are two audiences. In the old days, there was one audience, and that was whoever was there. And then when you got the microphone, that expanded. You know, you could, then you could have thousands of people. And once you got to radio and television, then you had millions of people, and you, were, you had to have two audiences. You had to pretend you were speaking to the people with you, but really you were speaking to the whole nation. But you can't ignore the people who are with you, as Ceausescu discovered and Lukashenko discovered the other day in Belarus. You can't ignore the people there because they can screw it up too. So the key thing is just to have a simplicity of message. And another key thing is authenticity. I mean, all politicians are actors. But when we watch theatre, when we watch actors on stage, we know that they're not who they're pretending to be. But politicians have to be actors who we have to believe are totally authentic. Once you can fake authenticity, then you're made. Once you can fake authenticity, you're, you're made, and that's what it's all about. And, of course, the more authentic you are, the, the more you can be yourself. I mean, Donald Trump is the classic, is one example of that. Another example in here is Elizabeth II, Queen of the Queen. Now, her speech in COVID, you know, because we've got some really modern speeches in here. We've got her speech about COVID, you know, we will meet again, which I think is a brilliant speech. And we've also got John Boyega's speech about Black Lives Matter in here. So we've got some really modern ones from this year, which I think everyone should read. But also she makes some quite sort of, complex ideas if you read the speech about Britain's the British dilemma which is obviously a huge dilemma how does a country that you know made its wealth and power through empire adapt to an age in which many of our sort of institutions are still linked to empire and it's a very very difficult dilemma which we're sort of struggling with now but in another modern speech is this John Boyega you know the Star Wars actor and he talks about Black Lives Matter and that's a very different sort of speech because it's passioned, it's raging, it's, you know, it's after the murder of innocent black people by, by American police. And yet he gives his speech spontaneously. And the speech is actually rather a beautiful thing. And I like spontaneous speeches. I mean, another great spontaneous speech in here is Cromwell's speech, you know, to Parliament, mm. you know, where he actually loses his temper. But in absolutely beautiful prose, really, you know, in God's name, go, that speech, when he calls the, he calls the parliamentarians prostitutes, wretches and all that. But you know, he goes in there and loses his temper with his parliament and ch- chucks them out. That's a completely spontaneous speech. And, um, do you think and spe- it's perfect. Do you think speaking... I mean, obviously, you're, you're pointing out that you could... Even the, say, Democrat convention, when they're just addressing the camera, those mm. can still be speeches. Yeah. So do you think 
political oratory will always will always have a place. I think it's returned because of television. I think it's got much more important because of television. Um, it, it means it's a different sort of speech because what you're talking about is like classical oratory where you're sort of Pericles, Cicero. And then, of course, the 18th century, the great 18th century, 19th century, early 20th century leaders were all raised on classicism. So Churchill, Pitt the Younger, they all spoke in, the, in a pretty much with the same idea of sort of how a speech should be. And, I mean, of course, Churchill's were different because he developed it because for radio. He had to develop it for radio. But it's very interesting looking at Churchill. He couldn't have worked really on television. Mm. And on television, you know, he, he, none of his speeches would have worked because he couldn't deliver on television. Yeah, well, the platform saying, I mean, Lloyd George couldn't do radio, right? That's so right. Lloyd George was haranguing radio. great big yeah. crowds in slate quarries in Wales. That's right. And the minute he went to radio, he was absurd. And some that, Baldwin had a That's exactly there. right. That's exactly right. So, so you've got, you've got Gladstone, people like Gladstone and Lloyd George, brilliant at these huge yeah. crowds, but would have sounded insane on radio. <laughs> then you've got Churchill, who's like this Edwardian character. And yet, actually, his style, which is very carefully written speeches, worked over many times is brilliant on radio, but would have been disastrous on television. Hitler, funny enough, would have been good on television. Because mm. you watch, because Hitler is all about physicality. Churchill just sits there, and when he's speaking, he just stands there with his glasses in his hand, which is very boring, would not have worked on television. But Hitler, not to compare him to Donald Trump, but he understood just how to play to his base, and he was a physical performer. And you know there's great photos of um, Hitler in those lederhosen practising his moves like this. And like this, and he sort of he understood that all that he understood theatre. So he actually oddly would have worked well on on television, which is a strange thing. But I've got some sort of new ones in here that I want to mention while I'm at it. Can I can I read? Yes, one? you mentioned. Yeah, um, read a favourite. I want to read this because this is this is an interesting one that I think everyone should know. I've added this to the book. Now this is a speech by Al Hajjaj um, bin Yusuf, who was the sort of henchman and hatchet man, an enforcer of um, Abdul Malik the Caliph, the Caliph in fact who built the Dome of the Rock. In, in Jerusalem. And this is, this is his most famous speech. It's an extraordinary speech, which I've had beautifully translated by an Arab friend of mine. And what it's interesting about it was, he's given the governorship of um, Kufa in Iraq. And he goes there with all his troops and he surrounds this rebel city in Iraq. And basically he's going to kill everybody in the city. So he surrounds it with his troops. But then because he's a good Muslim and also he's slightly sort of, he's got a very kind of, he's brilliantly educated because he's an ex-teacher um, from Arabia. Um, he goes and he gives a speech on the Friday night prayers. And the speech he gives is in, per- in Arabic, it's in perfect poetry. It's like someone sort of giving a Shakespearean speech off the cuff. And in the Arab world, I found out about this because I was talking to people and they said, like, well, of course, in the Arab world, we, we just recite our judge's address. We, we learned it as children. And it's actually the most bloodthirsty speech. I'm just going to read you if I can actually see it here. Yeah, it goes, O people of Kufa, by God, I can bear the weight of evil. Grab it like a shoe by its sole and strike them with it. I see hungry stares and straining necks. I see ripened heads ready to be plucked. I am their master. I see blood flowing between turbans and heads. O people of Iraq, centre of disunity, hypocrisy, corruption and vice. I have been chosen for my experience. The commander of the faithful, may God prolong his life, gathered his arrows, loaded his bow and then struck you with the arrow. The arrow is that is me, because you surrendered to temptation, got swept away by delusion and walked the road to darkness. By God, I'll grind you down to dust and beat you like unruly camels. And it goes on like that. But he, it's, but he does it in perfect poetry. And, and it's, how, just, it's, uh, a, it's a masterpiece of Arabic, Arabic poetry, but also the most terrifying speech. And how do the people of Kufu respond? 
they listened in silence and then were all killed. Oh, okay. Yeah, um, but it was recorded. But I just think it's interesting that it's a speech that's completely kind of everyone in the Arab, everyone in the Arab world knows it off by heart, and we've never heard of it over here. So, so it's very nice to have something that not everyone. You know, we've got Churchill and Kennedy and Roosevelt in here, but and Pitt the Younger. But it's very nice to have some people who aren't so familiar. Well, thank you very much for bringing them all to our attention. The book is called. It's called Voices of History: Speeches That Changed the World. Thank you very much for coming to talk about it. Thanks. Always fun. The secret to summer-ready skin is here. Osea's number one best-selling Andaria Algae Body Oil, clinically proven to instantly improve skin elasticity and transform dry skin to silky, soft, and unbelievably glowing. Its signature scent of freshly squeezed grapefruit, cypress, and mango mandarin transports you to sun-kissed summer days. Get healthy, glowing skin for summer with clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code GLOW at OseaMalibu.com. Thank you for listening to this episode of Dan Snow's History. Please follow this show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us and you'll be doing us a big favour. Don't forget you can also listen to all of these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of TV documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com slash subscribe. As a special gift, you can also get your first three months for just £1 a month when you use code DANSNOW at checkout.